Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer, John Williams, one film at a time. Starting with his debut as a film composer in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from John Goldfarb, Please Come Home, made in 1965. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. It's good to have you here, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. If you listened to the last episode, episode number 10, you remember the very dramatic and earnest score that John Williams wrote for the war film None But the Brave. Now, imagine the exact opposite type of movie, and you'll get an idea of what John Williams was facing with his next film. When the assignment for John Goldfarb, Please Come Home, came to John Williams, it was early 1964, and he was finishing up his work on the score for The Killers. He was also nearing the end of his contract with Review Studios. His work with Review had his attention focused on writing music for television, and that included some dramas and comedies, often one right after the other. So, turning from scoring dramas like The Killers and None But the Brave to a slapstick comedy was not that unusual for John Williams. As his contract for review was coming to an end, Williams was not interested in renewing it. And that surprised me because the money for episodic television scoring is very good. And at 32 years old, John Williams was likely very well off financially, but knew the real work came in movies. So, while he was finishing his work in 1964 on the pilot season of Gilligan's Island, John Williams set out to begin his life as a freelance film composer with John Goldfarb, Please Come Home. The origins of this film come from a gathering of the writer, star, and producer one night, which is sometimes how most movie ideas are created. Shirley MacLaine and her husband, Steve Parker, invited neighbor William Peter Blatty to their home. The conversation turned to the recent events surrounding Francis Gary Powers, the real-life U-2 pilot whose plane crashed in the Soviet Union in 1960 and caused an international incident. The three thought the story could make for a hilarious comedy, and Blatty set out to write a screenplay that would feature McLean in the leading role and Parker as producer. No studio wanted the screenplay, so Blatty turned the screenplay into a novel, and suddenly 20th Century Fox came calling. Blatty's work would be in high demand almost 10 years later when his novel The Exorcist caught Hollywood by storm. The film John Goldfarb, Please Come Home features what would be considered an all-star cast. In addition to McLean in the lead as Jenny Erickson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, Peter Ustinov was another of the big names attached to it. Ustinov was a two-time Oscar winner with his second award for supporting actor coming in 1964 for the heist drama Topkapi. Ustinov was making a radical shift for his acting in John Goldfarb, Please Come Home. He was very dramatic in Topkapi, and here, he's a bumbling king of a fictional Middle Eastern country resembling Saudi Arabia. His acting was such an over-the-top character of Middle Eastern stereotypes that there was no way he was going to get a nomination for any kind of award, except for maybe a Golden Raspberry Award, which honors the worst acting in movies. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, the Razzies as they are known, weren't created until 1980, but I think John Goldfarb would have been nominated in many categories at the Razzies. 
If you watch the film, you'll notice a couple of prominent TV actors in supporting roles. Jim Backus, better known as Thurston Howell III in Gilligan's Island, is a bumbling State Department employee. His boss is Harry Morgan, who would gain fame as Colonel Potter in MASH a few years later. And there's Telly Savalas in a cameo, as well as Jerry Orbach, the future lead star of Law & Order, and the voice of Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast. The entire cast seems to be in on the joke that this movie should be as wild and zany as possible, and they succeeded, though I'm not really using succeeded in a very positive light. John Williams, however, managed to keep all of his music grounded, even the slapstick music, and created a moderately interesting love theme for the two main characters. But what is more exciting about this score is that it marks the maestro's first foray into songwriting for films. The title song to this film is performed by Shirley MacLaine. Not a bad choice. The tune itself is catchy and kitschy as well. Don Wolfe was the lyricist, and he had written only two songs before this. Not much is known about Don Wolfe, and he didn't write any more songs after this, so he kind of just vanished. I'm sure many years later, when John Williams became famous, Don Wolfe was able to look back fondly on his collaboration with Williams before he was famous. Okay, so let's take a listen to the song as played during the opening credits. song existed before watching the film recently. When the song started, I got nervous. I assumed it was not written by Williams and really hoped the score wouldn't feature more rehashes of the song's theme, similar to what he had to do for Diamond Head and Gidget Goes to Rome. When I saw that Williams wrote the music to the song, I was still worried that the score would just rehash the da 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 over and over. But Thankfully, it only comes up a few times before the finale. The release of the film was delayed by four months, and I'll get into that history later in this episode. But the delay gave the filmmakers time to make a change to the theme song, putting McLean into that spot over J.P. Morgan, who was the original singer. Here's a bit of Morgan singing the theme song, and I sensed a bit of a Shirley Bassey inspiration here. 
old fire, please come home. There's a lonesome feeling around the Pentagon. John Goldfire, please come home. You're the kind of hero we depend upon. John Goldfire, please come home. I'm not sure which version I like best. Morgan's version is better away from the film, though since this is a lowbrow comedy, McLean's interpretation is probably the best choice. Most of the underscore I said does not feature the the John Goldfarb Please Come Home theme song, and it's flavored with a Middle Eastern flair with some 60s funk sprinkled on top. As far as I know, this is the only John Williams score that features an electric guitar in the finished product, though I'm anxious to see if I'm wrong about that as this journey progresses. Within the more than 100 film scores John Williams has composed, this is one of his most experimental. He doesn't stick to one music genre, but the score doesn't feel disjointed. None of it had me wondering the motive behind putting a particular piece of music into a scene. It all feels natural, and that's not an easy thing for a composer to do. So, let's dive into the film score, and be warned there are spoilers about the plot ahead. The film starts with a look at the life of the King of Fausia, that fictional country I mentioned earlier. We first see the king playing with an elaborate train set. Ustinov plays this so animated that I'm shocked that he wasn't actually animated. It's silly, buffoonish, and a big caricature. And somehow, 20th Century Fox didn't catch any heat for this portrayal, but rather the way the Notre Dame football team is portrayed in the film. And there will be more on that later. John Williams scores the early scenes with King Fawz in a surprisingly subdued way, using some Middle Eastern orchestrations with an electric guitar presiding over all of it. I really have to give props to John Williams for realizing that the action on screen, as King Foss throws a tantrum when his trains go haywire, is crazy enough that the music doesn't need to amplify the quote-unquote comedy. Things do get a little crazy when the king ditches his playroom for the harem's den, 
using his golf cart to go from room to room. The music in the film ends as the king crashes into a large vase. So we'll skip ahead a bit in the film after we've been introduced to McLean's character Jenny Erickson, as well as the title character John Goldfarb, played by Richard Crenna. Crenna wasn't a well-known actor at the time, having worked on moderately successful TV shows. He would earn his star status later for his roles in the Rambo film series. In this film, he's playing the U-2 pilot whose plane goes awry over Fauzia, causing him to crash his plane in the middle of the desert. Before he takes off, we get introduced to a military-style theme dominated by percussion. The percussion and other instrumentation here have some similarities to what we will hear for the military in 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Not too surprising that the snare drums are used for portraying the military, but it's interesting that Williams will return to this type of music about 12 years later. After our scene with Goldfarb inspecting his plane, the movie cuts back to Fawz's palace where Jenny has arrived with the new harem. I like this music that plays over the proceedings. Obviously, it has a Middle Eastern flavor, but the great thing is that it just colors the scene. And then we go back to Goldfarb, who is now in his plane, and this is the first time we hear an instrumental version of the theme song. As Goldfarb's instruments go awry, he's forced to eject from his plane and parachute down into the desert. He thinks he's seeing a bunch of mirages, a man calling for prayer, 
a football field, and a lavish palace are some of the things he sees with his sunburned vision. John Williams takes that visual and plays with it. The king's son approaches Goldfarb, who snaps out of his haze. Goldfarb takes out a map and points to the Soviet Union, as if to ask if that is where he has landed. But the prince takes Goldfarb's pink finger and moves it to Fauzia, accompanied by this music. That's kind of fun. The instrumentation of the score in this film is what makes this compelling to hear. In many ways, I appreciate the score more when hearing it apart from the film, which is not usually the case with me. I often listen to John Williams' music away from the film and often think about the scene that the music is usually supposed to accompany. Here, I notice that I enjoyed the music more away from the hammy acting. So, the king has captured Goldfarb and promises to not tell the world that the American has screwed up his mission as long as Goldfarb promises to coach his ragtag football players into an unbeatable team. Goldfarb, a former football player himself, agrees because he knows he can't go back home with honor. As a way of thanking him, the king gives Goldfarb the opportunity to pick a woman from his harem. The women of the harem, including Jenny, enter the throne room and dance for the king and John. The music here is very Arabian in influence, not surprising given the type of dance the women of the harem are performing. Once Jenny notices Goldfarb in the throne room, the music becomes a bit more seductive as she tries to convince Goldfarb to pick her so she can escape the king's advances. Notice how the clarinet can sound sexy, something that is often the job of the saxophone.
And then the music takes a sharp right turn as the dance of the harem ends. Goldfar picks Jenny as his lady for the night, much to the anger of the king who wanted Jenny for himself. Jenny and John pretend to make out when the king bursts into the room to see if they really are hitting it off. Once he leaves, Jenny and John decide to go to sleep. Seeing that John is a decent guy, she lets him share the bed with her, and this is when we get that love theme I mentioned earlier. It's not a standout theme, but it's a welcome respite from all the craziness we had been getting for the past 50 minutes of the movie. The flute is a nice touch, as you will hear. But the slapstick can't stay away too long. The king doesn't like that his top harem woman isn't sleeping with him, so he concocts a train collision in Goldfarb's room to disrupt Jenny and John. The toy trains erupt in flames, and King Foz is there to douse the flames, as well as our two lovers, with a fire hose. Williams had no choice but to write some music heavy on the comedy, and he figured that he might as well take it over the top. Thank you. 
The next night, John insults Jenny, but they reconcile. The king comes to the room to check on them, and John and Jenny embrace in bed. In an attempt to continue to console Jenny, he kisses her on the forehead, which leads to a real kiss on the lips and another great rendition of their love theme. Now that John knows that the football players on his team are going up against the unstoppable team from Notre Dame, he amps up the training. John Williams gives us some fun rah-rah music that sounds like any generic fight song to go with the comedy antics on screen as the team goes through some drills. The Notre Dame team arrives, and the king treats them to a lavish feast with his harem serving as entertainment. For the first part of the scene, William supplies more Arabian-inspired source music, but since the team is called the Fighting Irish, he actually throws in a little Irish flavor as well. Let's see if he could spot it. Williams changes gears when the King's real dancers show up and perform sultry dances for the football team. Notice that the clarinet is still the instrument of choice.
Once the belly dancers are done, the harem invites the football players, the coaches, and the guests from the State Department to dance. Williams does something quite inspiring here. He takes the Notre Dame fight song and puts it through some Middle Eastern orchestrations. I'm not going to say that only John Williams would have thought about doing something like that with the music. I'm simply going to say that it takes a special composer to pull that off so well. I wouldn't have been upset or surprised if we got some more 60s funk music like we got at the end of the harem dance earlier in the film. But that would have been the easy way out. And John Williams rarely takes the easy way out with his music. I'm going to say very little about the football game that takes up the final 15 minutes or so of the movie. Of course, you know going in that Fauzia will win the game. The meat that the Notre Dame football players ate the night before is giving them stomach aches, and that takes some of the best players out of the game. John Goldfarb makes a deal with the King that he will be able to go back to the United States with Jenny if his team wins. If Notre Dame wins, John will be handed over to the Soviets. Knowing this, Jenny decides to put on a football uniform and run the winning touchdown. She starts out, however, by running toward the opposing team's end goal. Goldfarb stops her, and through the magic of movies, Jenny stops in midair and then runs in the correct direction.
When she gets to the end zone, she's hurled into the air by one of the many random geysers of oil coming from the ground. Goldfarb theme plays for about two minutes under the celebration on the field. It's assumed that Jenny and John will return home, as is suggested by the reprise of the theme song during the end credits. And notice the change in the lyrics. So, everyone lives happily ever after. Well, maybe not Notre Dame. The real Notre Dame was so upset at the depiction of the football team and its coaches that the university sued 20th Century Fox. Notre Dame won the case, and the studio was forced to drop the film from its planned Christmas 1964 release date. The appeal went Fox's way, though, citing freedom of expression. Notre Dame's appeal of that decision was not upheld, and 20th Century Fox was free to release the film in March 1965. One would think that the publicity would get people interested in the film, but the critics put a stop to that, and the film only made $3 million at the box office. So this is a film that almost didn't make it to theaters. I'm glad it did, because we got another unique entry into the John Williams Musical Library. The score for this film remind me, reminded me of the work he would do for Home Alone, 25 or 26 years later. Lots of slapstick music buoyed by a few gentler scenes, and many musical cues that last just 10 seconds or so. As we know, Home Alone fared much better at the box office and is an infinitely better score. John Goldfarb, Please Come Home marked the beginning of John Williams' desire to fully immerse himself into writing music for films. He would still finish his contract with Review, and supply some interesting music for television for two more years. We'll talk about some of those TV shows in upcoming episodes. On the next episode of The Baton, we'll talk about the first of five films that were released in 1966 that featured John Williams' music. And, did you know that John Williams wrote a symphony? We'll talk about this mysterious composition that only got three performances and has been essentially disowned by the composer. So, we've got a lot to learn about John Williams in episode 12, and I am looking forward to it. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can become a follower of the show on the Podbean app, and you can submit comments to me there as well. Feel free to also reach out to me on Twitter through my handle, Jeff Swim. 
on Instagram with Cummings Jeff, or on Facebook as well. You can also send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com. Until next time, the baton is down.